CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello and welcome to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's podcast on everything medieval and early modern. My name is Michał Machalski and I'm joined here today by Maria Varga. She finished her PhD in Medieval Studies at Central European University in 2019. She worked as the Research Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Vienna, and she is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Archaeology at Charles University in Prague. Her research interests include digital humanities, material culture, and social and landscape archaeology of the High Middle Ages. Her most recent monograph, Modeling Christianization, a geospatial analysis of the archaeological data on the ruler church network of Hungary in the 11th and 12th centuries, was published by Archeo Press earlier this year. Maria, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Michal. Thank you for the invitation. If I were asked uh, how did the Christianization of Central Europe look like, I would probably mention dates of the baptism of local rulers, like Polish Mieszko or St. Stephen, or establishment of the ecclesiastical structures, funding of the first bishoprics, monastic donations, etc. I would look at the analytic sources, documents issued for the newly created institutions, and hagiographical tales of the first local missionaries and saints. What is missing from such a traditional approach to Christianization? So I think if we go back to the very beginning when we start studying history or archaeology even, then the first thing that we learn that what we get from sources is the tip of the iceberg, right? Because, of course, there's so much that we don't know about the past. But actually, what the tip is differs for historical sources and archaeological sources. What I think is that Christianization and this kind of social processes of state formation of the very beginning is very much directed by the historical evidence. So the research is very historically driven. Therefore, what we know about that is constructed mostly on those sources that you said. But if we think about who those sources speak about, then we can count the rulers, we can count the most important saints, a couple of bishops. And similarly, you know, when we think about not about the people, but also the network, the church network itself, then we know of the very top level, but not really of the lower level. Now, if you think about both society and also the church network, then what we can see is that we can imagine it as a pyramid, right? So if we look at it on this country level of Hungary, we have the archbishopric on top, then we have the bishoprics and so on. And down at the pyramid, we have the local churches, and we have the general population. And I think this is what is missing from this picture. So we have very, very little written sources that actually refers to the general population of the everyday people and their little churches. And that was the one that I was interested in. Compared to history, archaeology is also the tip of the iceberg because, of course, you cannot you know, reconstruct a whole life from the very minimal remains that you have in archaeology. But the advantage of archaeology is that it speaks of all levels of society. So you can actually have a grasp about these people who are silent in the written sources. Uh, can you then describe for us a little bit uh, this tip of the archaeological iceberg, mm. the archaeological data that is available for 
someone who would be interested in the study of Christianization? Sure. So there are many things in archaeology that you can consider that it's connected to Christianization. For example, of course, you can start in material culture, which was the center of the focus of archaeological research for a long time. So that goes for also things mostly in burial context, so things that you wear and the ways you were buried. So if we stay at the example of Hungary, it's pretty easy to differentiate because we have, for example, the very typical burial customs of the conquest period, which means that we have horse burials, we have like pots as grave goods and so on and so forth, which you would not expect in a Christian context, right? So that's easy, but you don't always have that. So this is where you enter the gray zone and things get a little bit more tricky. And then you start looking for things in the graves, like sort of accessories that having like a cross sign or even pectoral crosses and so on and so forth. But interpretation of these are a little bit ambiguous because we cannot know that if there was someone who was buried with a pectoral and many other things as well. Actually, there are even examples when you have this kind of pagan amulet type of things within one burial with crosses as well. So how they interpreted these crosses or even who put that crosses in the grave? Was it, you know, the deceased? Really it belonged to the deceased? Or was it one of the mourners? It's really, really hard to interpret that and it's a little bit of a slippery slope. And actually I didn't want to go into that and I, I did not go into that in my book especially because of that. And I think that is the part of Christianization which we could more identify as conversion. And I think conversion on the level of the everyday people and by archaeological means is something that is really, really hard to touch upon. And you will always be in the gray zone. And especially if you go for like um, more targeted research, which means what I mean by that is that a more small-scale research, so you're analyzing like one cemetery. So I think these kind of investigations, but that's just an idea I have, may be integrated into a big data research, because if you have a much bigger data pool to compare, then you might be able to say something. But what I think that you can do with Christianization is that if you put aside the conversion, and if you consider institutionalized Christianization, which means the establishment of the local churches and the burials around them. And then you can contextualize these churches within the contemporary landscape, meaning that you can check where the non-churchyards burials are, what their relation to them, what their relation to early power centers, let it be secular or ecclesiastical. And I think that is something that can surely talk about Christianization, because if uh, there is a burial in a churchyard, you would not question whether it's Christian or not. And I guess that's where the geospatial analysis comes into the picture. So before we continue with uh, Hungary and Central Europe, could you explain to our listeners and to me <laughs> uh, what geospatial analysis is? Sure. So I think when we are thinking about geospatial analysis, the first thing that comes into most people's mind are maps, right? So that you imagine that we visualize things. But actually, geospatial analysis is a lot more than that. So how you should imagine it, that it's 
a database where you can have all sorts of qualitative data added to each value that you have. So, for example, if I want to give you a very simple example, then let's say that we are talking about churches and one point on a map represents one church. But in the database, you don't only have the location of the church, but you can say that it's a 12th century church, it was built of ashlar stones, and it was dedicated to St. Michael, and uh, then we know that it was, I don't know, funded by the king. Okay? And you can go on. So basically what you should imagine is that you have a data pool in a sort of database that can be imagined as a relational database. And you have the opportunity to analyze the data within that database with built-in algorithms that you have in these geospatial information system frameworks, different frameworks. And these built-in algorithms provide you a possibility to do a statistical analysis, to integrate your data within the physical landscape, so to analyze the actual um, physical environment of where these places, where these little churches in this case were. And you can also analyze in different, many different ways their relations to other data that you put in the system. So for example, I can add another layer in there, which is going to be the castles. Then I can examine the relations of the churches and the castles. And I can add as many layers into this analysis, as many as I want. So it's a long way coming from the studies of the 70s and the 80s, which I admire, by the way. So it's really great that this kind of geospatial thinking started then really but they didn't have the means so what they had were semi-transparent papers and scissors and pens and that's what you see in the contemporary publications and those are really the results of hard work of putting these semi-transparent papers up on top of each other and creating an image in the end so now we not only can do that we can not only visualize data but with this kind of huge back data that we have within the system, so all the qualitative data that we assign to each value that we have in there, we can create a much more sophisticated analysis that would be not possible, you know, on paper. And what were the results of applying those methods to the study of Christianization in medieval Hungary? So the results of the analysis even surprised me a little bit. I did not go into this analysis with big expectations because I really did not know what to to look for. I had, of course, ideas, but I did not expect to have such a clear sort of result that I get. So basically, I think many people know about this law of St. Stephen that has been repeated many times, in general was considered a topoi, that every 10 village should build a church, right? In general, this was really considered as some sort of just an idea, you know, that they throw out there and then they say that, yeah, you know, the people should be Christianized, but in reality it's not happening because we don't have many standing 11th century churches. We don't have this kind of evidence 
in front of our eyes, so to say. And I think the key point here was what we see. So in my work, I not only work with published data, and I don't only work with art historical data or historical data, but we try to integrate everything. And the crucial part of this is the integration of data from archaeological archives. And therefore, there are a lot of data that are not in the forefront of research, but you can get significant information from it when you do this kind of geospatial analysis, because you can know a location, you can know an approximate dating, and you can know what type of site you're dealing with. And basically, that was what I was doing. Then what turned out is that there is a fairly even network of local churches already from the beginning. So it means that this kind of conscious planning really is more likely than a sort of more natural, more random development of local initiatives. So already in the 11th century, we have an established network of rural parishes. I would not say parishes, but I would say pastoral churches. So just because I am very aware of not offending the ecclesiastical historians who <laughs> say parishes don't exist before the 13th century. So yes, of course, we have a fraction of evidence for the 11th century than what we have for the 12th century. So... That is, that is very obvious, that this kind of a network that we can reconstruct for the 11th century is only a fraction of what might have been. But even that shows this kind of very nice similarities in different regions of the country. And since we know that the taphonomical loss was really big on the 11th century data, if you do comparisons with the 12th century data, and especially if you do comparisons of field cemeteries, so the cemeteries that were not around churches, which we know that belong to the 11th century, and we check where the churches have been erected later, then you can identify these kind of gaps. And these kind of gaps are the ones that also help us to reconstruct that, yes, there was most probably a church already in the 11th century. We only have data from the 12th century. But because of the positionings uh, of these different site types, there had to be something. So if there are people, they had to be buried somewhere. They had to, if they lived somewhere, they had to be buried somewhere. And these kind of gaps are the ones and the comparison of the 11th and the 12th century network that helps to establish this assumption <laughs> that, yes, already in the 11th century, there was a quite stable network of churches, even if it was obviously looser than in the 12th century. Obviously, when examining traditional written sources on the topic of Christianization of Hungary, one sees that uh, it was a trouble-free process so does do events like the pagan reaction and death of St. Gellert, are they reflected also in archaeological sources? Yeah, that was actually also an interesting finding of this research because I kind of expected to find something like that, and in the end I couldn't. And that's interesting because these kind of pagan revolts were considered by the historians who were thinking about how the ecclesiastical network have developed in the country. And some of them even suggested that based partially, of course, on these 
pagan revolts and many other things, there could have been significant differences in the Western and Eastern half, for example, and in certain areas where they expected these pagan revolts. But actually, if you compare the field cemeteries, the early church network, and the 12th century church network, then you can't really see the differences in these places, which can be, I think, explained by two things. One, the 11th century data is fragmentary, even in my research, and therefore there's not enough data to really see the results of these pagan revolts, which is possible. And also by the 12th century, everything was like in order, and therefore it doesn't, it just doesn't appear. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is that whenever we think about this kind of Christianization itself, but also the pagan revolts, how much do you think we are talking about really religious beliefs and the battle of religious beliefs, or how much we are talking about politics, right? So I think it's a balance, but I think that especially in the beginnings, it's more politics than actual religious beliefs. I'm not saying that those are not there, but the main kind of drive is politics. Therefore, if you think about how much traces do we have um, regional political quarrels of the 11th century in the archaeological material, it's not much. I think that would be the second explanation, that we just don't really have this kind of maybe importance in the reality of these movements than what it happens in the sources. That's very interesting. And what about a different aspect that has been frequently puzzling the historians of Hungarian Christianization, which is the activity of Byzantine missionaries and the bishopric of Turku? <laughs> Can you find some evidences of, in the archaeological sources of that? Yeah, so actually in this research, I cannot say that I paid huge focus on that because when I conducted research that was on the site level which means that I considered what kind of site type we are dealing with we are dealing with a church a cemetery da 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 and what the date of it but I was not paying attention on whether it was connected to Latin Christianization or it was connected to Byzantine Christianity because I think it comes again back into this gray zone that we talked about before. So when we are talking about how much we can see the effects of the Byzantine Christianity, when it translates to archaeological material, then there are usually two things that are considered. One is material culture, and many times, again, these kind of pectoral crosses that we talked about. And the second thing is the ground plan, or sometimes decoration of churches. That is again something that is debated, that should be like studied on a case-by-case -case basis, for one. And it's also going beyond this kind of site-level investigation that I did in this project. But actually, that is something that I would love to tackle in a future research. So you are currently working in a broader research team that studies Christianization not only in Hungary, but also in other places in Central Europe. Can you tell us more about the similarities and differences between different Central European polities? Is the Bohemian case similar to the Hungarian 
How does the access to the data differ across the regions? Yeah, so I was very lucky to get this grant at Charles University. And we have a research team there where we do a comparison between Bohemia and Hungary. Obviously, for Hungary, uh, I have the data and the analysis is more or less done. So it's um, our focus is mostly on Bohemia and Moravia. And now we are, at the moment, finishing the data collection. So we haven't really yet stepped into the analysis phase. We did some preliminary analysis, so we have some analysis of smaller regions. And I think what's interesting is that, again, I did not expect, you know, that I would see the same thing as in Hungary. But what we can see is that maybe in Bohemia we can see a bit more regional differences than than what was observable in Hungary. And I think the whole comparison is interesting because if we think about the history of these different regions in Central Europe, then I have this idea that it would be so nice to make a really like large-scale comparison of the areas on the eastern fringes of the Ottonian or later Holy Roman Empire. Because what you see is that these polities have different independence, uh, both political and ecclesiastical from the empire. They also have different influences, because in some regions we can see the Byzantine influence. That is, you know, through Kiev comes in from the north as well. And in some areas this is completely missing. But we still have a sort of like, so if we go down to like present-day Slovenia, for example, and of course we have, again, a Mediterranean influence, which is different. And what I would really love to see is that if we compare an area which is relatively central, so for example, the territory of the Bishopric of Salzburg, which is also important because, of course, many missions were starting from there to the east of different directions, east, then I think it would be really exciting to make a comparison whether these kind of different traditions of Christianity, the different political independence and the different ecclesiastical independence shows any kind of changes in these patterns that we can observe. Because it can be imagined that, for example, in the case of Hungary, where the country was independent from the empire, it was also uh, building up uh, an independent church from very early onwards. Then you can imagine that this kind of central force that we have in the country works more effectively than in a polity where the ecclesiastical and political kind of power is not necessarily in one hand or in the same hand. So I think these these are very interesting questions and I really hope that one day we can get an answer for it. I just need to convince um, grant agencies to give me money so I can hire people and do a big project on it. Yeah, speaking about hiring people, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more on the technical challenges of collecting such a vast amount of data for mm. not only, like in case of Hungary, of one country, but for the region spanning multiple modern polities. Mm. Sure. So there are basically two things that needs to be considered, first of all. One is the research ethics, so to say, and 
the rights of who data belongs to. Now, in the areas that I'm researching, it was fairly easy because we have the archaeological archives where I mentioned that I think those are gold mines, honestly. So those are the data where we know where things have been happening, when it have been happening, but we don't know much about the sites themselves necessarily. And therefore, archaeologists don't like to deal with them often because, you know, we like to know the details. We like to know as much as we know about the sites. We like to know the finds and so on and so forth. So these are, I think, the data pools that are these kind of undiscovered possibilities. And in case of Hungary and in case of Bohemia, that's a lucky situation because these archaeological archives are more or less complete. So they have the data from the beginning of recording archaeological sites up to modern date. Of course, there are areas which still like being added and the new information is constantly being added to it. So these are dynamic data sets, so to say. But they are available for researchers in both countries. So in Bohemia, it's available if you do a registration with the Academy of Sciences, then you can access the data. And in Hungary, it's the same thing. You have to do a registration to this site. And depending on your uh, status, whether you are a researcher belonging to some sort of research institution or you're just an interested person in history and archaeology, but you are not an effective archaeologist or historian, you get different level of access. But you can see the sites and you can know what's there in any case. So these are freely available data. And that is easy. But then comes uh, something that one of my friends calls reverse engineering, which I really like, this expression. And that is basically covering the very simple task of people going through publications and digitizing information from publications. Let it be art historical, archaeological, historical, and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of menial work, I would say. But that is something that characterizes any kind of digital humanities research. So you know, when someone says digital humanities, then people instantly start thinking about these graphs and, and you know, the maps and everything is so colorful and dynamic and everything. But actually that part, the analysis part and getting the results is so much shorter than collecting the data, normalizing the data, structuring the data and so on and so forth. So that is the most challenging part, I would say. Well, I hope that you'll get all of the funding that you need to properly deal with those methodological challenges. Thank you. So for the last question, I think it would be nice to go back to something that you already alluded twice. What are the points of your research that you would wish to have more time or resources to expand upon in the future? So... What I think would be really nice to, to expand is that, as I said, the research that I'm conducting now and the one that I did for Hungary remains on the site level. But we talked a lot about material culture and these kind of debates around material culture and certain elements that were regarded you know, as items belonging to Christianization. 
And I think, but this is sort of a dream. So let's treat it that way. But I dream about the possibility of a really large-scale research on this level of the eastern fringes inside and outside of the borders of the Holy Roman Empire, where I can combine the star, the site-level research with in-depth analysis. So how you should imagine it is that we have one layer when we have the sites. The sites we can know from these archaeological archives and also publications and everything. But we know that there are some sites which have been very well researched, which means that there is a lot of data about the burial customs, about the items found in the graves, about the characters of the churches, and so on and so forth. So this kind of qualitative data. And I believe that if we have this huge data pool on the site level and we create an analysis, and into this analysis we can integrate a comparative perspective where we can bring in these micro-level aspects as well, like burial customs, like um, material culture, and so on and so forth, then I think we can have a more complete picture. And I think that the analysis of this kind of in-depth research would be a little bit lacking without the comparison of the site-level data, because that creates a bigger context that these kind of more drops of information of certain sites can be built into. And that is something that I would really, really like to do. And building this kind of large comparisons is certainly one of the huge promises of <laughs> digital humanities. Thank you very much, Maria, for coming in here today, and I hope to see you soon again. Thank you very much, Michal. It was a pleasure. Thank you.